title of tonight's message is, I like to call, The Story You Didn't Write. Now, if anyone knows me really well, they know I'm a huge nerd. I love all things comic books, superhero, that is my life. Look at DC movies, my favorite people out of those are The Flash and Green Lantern, for various reasons, but I also, in Marvel, I really, really, really love Spider-Man. He is my all-time favorite superhero. And the reason I love Spider-Man is, one, he's small, frame like me, so it gives me hope that I can get bitten by a spider and gain super strength and all that good stuff. But he didn't jump into being a superhero immediately. So I'm telling a little story, I'm preaching on Spider-Man, so just bear with me through this, and we'll, and we'll get to the Bible for real, I promise. So with Spider-Man, his real name is Peter Parker. He, his parents went vanished when he was little, so he now lives with his Uncle Ben and Aunt May in New York. All through his life, he is super, super smart, but he's bullied at school, so he has a lot of um, issues with his confidence. His, day, his life changes, though, when he goes on a science trip, and while in this science uh, facility, is bitten by a radioactive spider, and he gets all kinds of superpowers, like a spider. Super strength, he can stick to walls, he has super agility, and because he's so smart, he learns how to make web shooters to go and make webbing. So you would think, hey, Spider-Man, he has powers, let's go fight crime. But no, he is an insecure teenager, so he decides to go and make money. He goes and becomes a professional uh, amateur wrestler working for a company going as the Spider-Man. So he gets paid to go to these fights, and of course he wins. But one night things change, and the manager slights him his cut of the money. They get into an argument, but he says, go away, I'm not going to pay you anymore. So Peter, still dressed as Spider-Man, leaves, and on his way out the door, this guy comes in and goes to the manager's office and robs the place. And the guy starts running out the door towards Peter, and instead of stopping him, he steps to the side, guy runs right past him. Peter feels like, well, this is an eye for an eye thing, this guy had it coming, so no big deal. When Peter gets home to his Uncle May and Ben's house, um, he sees cops outside runs inside and he sees Aunt May crying and comes to find out that a burglar had broken in and killed his Uncle Ben. Filled with anger, he chases after the burglar. He follows some police scans and finds that he's been trapped in this warehouse down by the riverfront, so he goes after him. Unbeknownst to Peter, when he goes and confronts the burglar and unmasks him, it was the guy who had robbed the place earlier who he could have stopped. And from that time forward, Peter's life changes as Spider-Man. He lives by this model his Uncle Ben taught him. With great power comes great responsibility. And from that day on, he goes to fight crime as Spider-Man, always trying to honor the memory of his uncle with this. And for that reason, I love Spider-Man. He has some really cool villains he fights, and on top of being super strong and everything, he, he has a lot of sarcasm and quips. He jokes around with them. If you know me, I'm a big jokester and everything, so I love him about that. But... We can all sit here and say, well, Keith, that's great, but I don't really care for Marvel stuff. I'm sure we all here have different things we like. Some of us might like more sci-fi stuff, like Star Wars. If Anna was in here, she would definitely raise her hand for that. I know Natalie, she loves her Spanish soap operas. I've seen you watching those. Don't, don't lie. I know Mindy, she loves Christian murder mysteries, which I didn't think were a thing, but they are. 
we can all go through here and we love, we love stories. We love comedies, we love tragedies, we love action, we love adventure. Everyone here is made differently, so we like different things. But the big thing is we love stories. So it's not surprising that God is trying to write a story with our lives. The problem is the story we often want written for our lives is very different from the one that God wants to write for our lives. In our impatience, we will play God and try to take God's promises into our own hands and take his story into our hands. But in his patience, he lets us play God and write our own story. But in his love and mercy, he offers grace when we turn to him and let him continue to write the story of our lives. Well, you see, we're worried about the final product. We want the end game, the end goal, the end treasure. God, though, is more worried on the process. He wants the process of you growing more and more in his ways to look more like his son, Jesus Christ. And while you will get that final product, God is more focused on the process. Um, me and a group of friends, when we have Bible study and people would start to kind of lean more towards rushing things, we'd always tell them it's about progress, not perfection. And that is the whole of Christianity right here. It is not about being perfect. It is about progressing towards becoming godly. I love how Matt Chandler puts it. We all should be stumbling forward in our walks. And I like that analogy because it means we're stumbling, trying to do our best. We might fall, but we get back up and we keep pushing forward until we are experiencing God and becoming more and more like his son day by day. So with that being said, we're going to get into the Bible, like I promised. And we're going to talk about two women in the Bible who you may or may not know because they're not really preached on a lot. We'll be in Genesis 16 with Hagar and in Genesis 29 with Leah. And while these two women are separated by generations, they have three similarities. They were put in situations they did not want to be in, firstly. Secondly, in their desperation, they tried to write their own stories. And lastly, they realized their need for God and cried out to him, and he answered. So first, I'm a teacher. I'm going to have somebody read the passage. I'll sit and teach on it, and then I'll show you what I want to show you, and then we'll read the second passage. So, Jeremy, if you will read Genesis 16, verses 1 to 13, that'd be great. Sarai. It's okay. Sarai. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. 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 So Sarai said to Abraham, the Lord had prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abraham agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar to the Egyptian servant and gave her to Abraham as wife. This happened ten years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show you who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, Look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. The angel said to her, Hagar, 
Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. The angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You will name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man and and as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named. You can stop there. That's fine. I can't even. That's fantastic, man. Beer Leroy on. You're good, thank you. So, story of Hagar. Got to back up and give a little context before we get to this. So, with Hagar, uh, before, we have Abram and Sarai, who eventually become Abraham and Sarah, the people who actually start the entire Jewish race. And God, years and years before, had promised them that they would have a child to be his heir. And... 16 picks up where it hasn't happened yet, so Sarai decides to take it into her own hands. And things we can learn from this story with Hagar, um, I would talk about Sarai and Abram, but that's a different message altogether. But with Hagar, she is put in a situation she does not want to be in, in the fact that she is an Egyptian slave, and she is being forced by her mistress to marry and become pregnant by her master, a guy she has no affection or feelings for. So when I've heard pastors preach on this before, they, my translation reads differently. It says, after she had uh, become pregnant, she looked on her mistress with contempt. Now, I've heard pastors preach on this and say that she held it over Sarah's head that I'm pregnant, you couldn't become pregnant, which causes Sarah to respond harshly towards her. But about a month ago, I felt God telling me that he wanted me to re-study Abraham's life. And he's going to show me some things. And for me, i got to do it differently because I'm the one who will go and analyze every, every word, everything in there, go back to the Hebrew and figure it out. But learning this time to let the Spirit speak to me on this. So this part jumped out to me first because it says she looked on her mistress with contempt. And you got to think about it. She would have been a handmaiden or a servant. So not in her 20s or 30s, but more than likely a teenager. 14, 15, maybe 16, and she's being forced to become wife to a much, 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 much older man. So when she gets pregnant, she doesn't want to be pregnant, so she looks at Sarai with contempt. Sarai is jealous that Hagar is pregnant and starts to treat her harshly, probably beats her, talks down to her, makes her do the worst jobs in the house, just treats her horribly because even though Sarai, it was Sarai's idea, Hagar is the one who is pregnant and Sarai still not. So, in her desperation, Hagar tries to write her own story. She decides, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm going to run away and go to the desert. Hopefully start a new life there, or maybe just go there to die, because I can't handle this. So, while out there, the angel, she meets the angel of the Lord, and this is cool, because this is where she realizes her need for God. The angel says, what are you doing? I'm running away because I've been treated harshly. And the angel says something super, super interesting. He tells her to return and submit. 
I swear the first time I read that, the word submit didn't even exist in my Bible, but this time I read it and it was in there. <laughs> but I love that it's interesting that he didn't just say return and deal with it. He said return and submit to her authority. How many times in our lives has God asked us to do something that seemed completely, completely unfair to us? Yet, we do it, we persevere, and on the other side is a greater blessing than we could have seen initially. And I see that happening with Hagar. The angel says, return and submit to the Lord, and I will bless your son with a massive nation. And Ishmael goes on to um, pretty much become the patriarch for Islam. I'm not going to get into the differences there, but that's the blessing through there because Sarai tried to force God's blessing on it. And then I love what she says, what she calls the Lord. In Jerry's translation, it wasn't in there, but in my translation, she calls the Lord El Ruai. There are a lot of names for God in the Bible, Yahweh, Elohim, El Shaddai, Emmanuel, lots and lots of names to describe God's nature. But this name, El Ruai, it means God who sees. And you see this echoed all throughout Scripture. You see God right here seeing Hagar in need and reaching out to her. You see God seeing the Israelites when they're in captivity in Egypt, seeing that they're being oppressed and treated harshly, and he sends them a deliverer through Moses. You see God intervening for the Israelites when they're in the desert and they are wandering and they're hungry, and he sends them quelling men to sustain them. You see God after they get into Canaan and they fall away from him, seeing that they are turning away from him, and he sends the prophets to turn them back around and get them back on the right track. And I want to encourage whoever is here right now thinking that my prayers are not being seen or my suffering is not being seen and that God does not see me, that he sees you because his name is El Roi. And that is good news for those who are struggling. So keep persevering, keep pushing on because God sees and he hears. In Psalm 145, verse 19, it says, He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. 1 John 5, 14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So be encouraged that God sees and he hears you. So we're going to switch gears now and jump over to Genesis 29. And Miss Laurel, if you will pick up for me. beginning in verse 31 through 35. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. He has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. And then she stopped bearing. Thank you. So Leah person I studied years ago, and her, this time I read through it, she just popped out to me for a lot of different reasons. But the backstory for Leah, so you can get some context, is that she is the wife, one of the wives of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham and Sarah, eventually. 
But Jacob was a very deceitful person. He is known for going and dressing up in hair to look like his brother, feel like his brother Esau, to go before his father who was blind and receive his blessing from Isaac, therefore robbing Esau of his blessing. And then he goes to Esau and is stealing his birthright because Esau is starving and he prepares a meal for him. And Esau gives up his birthright so he can get a meal because he's so famished. So naturally, Esau is extremely, extremely mad at Jacob, and so he is told to leave and run away. And he runs and ends up going to the land where his uncle Laban lives. Now, Laban had two daughters, and Jacob falls in love with the second daughter, Rachel, because she's very beautiful. Leah, though, the Bible says that she had tender eyes, which is kind of the equivalent to she has a nice personality. So you can tell that she is not very pretty or anything, and Jacob's heart was for Rachel. But Laban ends up deceiving um, Jacob into marrying Leah before he can marry Rachel, and he works seven years in order to do this. And so when we pick up in chapter 29, verse 31, we're focusing on Leah. Now, with Leah, she had a lot of insecurities because she knows she's not very pretty, and she knows that her husband does not love her. The word says that Leah was unloved. And I know we can all be there at some points, feeling that we are unloved by our family, by our friends. Even sometimes we might feel, unlo- might feel unloved by the Lord, by the way things are going in our life. But take heart, he does love us very, very much. So Leah has her first child through Jacob. Um, yeah, Jacob. Reuben. And he's named so that way he would notice her. Doesn't work. Has a second child. Reuben Simeon, his second child, once again trying to get the affection of her husband. Still nothing. Finally comes Levi, third child, and she's hoping this time will be the one that my husband will notice me. Doesn't happen. Leah is put in a situation she does not want to be in. She is married to a man who does not love her. And in her desperation, she tries to write her own story. The way she does that is by trying to name these child and have these children so she can be recognized and loved by her husband. But it's not until the final child that she realizes, I will praise God this time, and that's it. Not for my husband, not for anybody else, but for God being God. And she names him Judah. She cried out to the Lord. She saw that she was hurting, and he answered her. Now, this was really cool to me, but I'm a huge Bible nerd, so let's, let's look at this. So, what line does Jesus Christ come through? If you go back to Jacob's 12 sons, which tribe does Jesus come from? Judah. And so, I think it's cool that Jesus didn't come through the line of Reuben, Simeon, or even Levi, because those were all names that were looking to win man's approval. But it happens through Judah that that happens. um, Leah here... I will praise the Lord. And I truly believe because she spoke that word over her son Judah, that's the line God chose to bless the nations with Jesus Christ our Savior. I don't know. The first time I read that, I was like, wow, Lord, you've got to be kidding me. That is so cool. But it goes to show that a lot of times we want the glory for what we do. We want to be recognized. We want to be the center of attention when God is the one who wants to be glorified, not us. So trust that God is the better author and that he's ultimately writing a story that is for your good and ultimately for his glory. 
God does this in the Bible through Jesus Christ. Because for many of us, before we became Christians, we were trying to write our own story. Whatever that may look like, by trying to be the popular one in school, by turning to drugs, by turning to alcohol, by just living a life that's completely against the will of God. We've all been there as Christians. According to the word, we, no one was righteous, not one person. And before a holy and righteous God, without Christ, we are all equally sinners. But God saw this, sees his children, and sees that they cannot save themselves. So he sends Jesus Christ, his son, to live the perfect life, to accomplish every single prophecy that is done in the Old Testament. He goes to the cross to bear the wrath of God for our sins. And it's through his death, burial, and resurrection and belief in that that we are made new beings in Christ. And from that point on, we get to live the story that God has written for us. I was meeting with Mr. Kevin Beasley on Sunday, and he was telling me, um, the author, is it John Eldridge, we're talking about the ark, that we're living in this ark between Genesis and what's about to unfold in Revelation. And God has placed us in a specific spot for a specific reason. And with that, we're given a choice. We can live out the story he has written for us, or we can go and write our own story. And as Christians, we have that choice. Even before him, we have that choice. When you accept Christ, you can choose to follow his ways, uh, get plugged into a church family, get into the word, spend time in prayer, get to know your heavenly father. Or you can go and say you believe and just go do your own thing, which a lot of people do. And God, being God, will let us play God ourselves. Because the God of the Old Testament would punish immediately. But the God of the New Testament doesn't punish immediately. He punishes us by letting us play God. So, we have a choice. With that being said, even as Christians and following him, it doesn't mean life is all of a sudden sunshine and roses and nothing ever goes wrong. If it was that way, Christianity would be the only religion on earth because everything would be perfect. Christ even says that we are going to go through hard times. We'll be persecuted for his name. We'll be thrown out of temples. We'll be thrown out of places. We'll be ridiculed by people because of what we believe. But it tells us to take heart because he has overcome the world. When I think about suffering, um, I read an article a few weeks ago on the site Desiring God. And it was written by this single mother who was recently divorced. The story with her was that she was married, had two kids. Husband all of a sudden leaves the family. She's trying to keep everything together financially and spiritually, so she's praying for her family, praying for reconciliation. But over time, things change. Her daughters end up turning away from God because they blame him for what happened. They blame him for the fact that her husband, that their father left them and has nothing to do with them anymore. So they turn their backs on God. But she continues to pray for them day in and day out. But she sees things just getting worse and worse. And she even writes about how she felt like God wasn't hearing her prayers or seeing the suffering. But then God shows up. Starts working on the eldest daughter who starts praying again. Going to Bible study. Eventually starts attending church. And in this article is being led to go to Africa to be a missionary. I mean, you can say hallelujah all you want to, but that is God working in that. And the little sister works through the, uh, follows the same path as well. And she had this really, really great quote that I'm going to share with you guys. 
When confronted with suffering that won't go away, or even with a minor problem, we instinctively focus on what is missing, not on the master's hand. Often we think everything has gone wrong. It's just that you're in the middle of a story. We are all in the middle of a story right now. And for some of us, the story is going great. For some of us, the story's been difficult, it's been hard. But I'm going to close with two things. Firstly, with Hagar and Leah. I don't believe that when Hagar got back, everything went well with her and Sarah. I guarantee she got back and she was still mistreated. She was still beat down. She was still looked down upon because she was pregnant and Sarah wasn't. But eventually, prayerfully, when Sarah became pregnant, there was restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness that happened. But we don't know that part of the story. With Leah, she probably still went unloved for a long time, even after having Judah. Having four sons of her own, she probably still went unloved for Jacob for many, many years. Later in the story, Jacob actually is returning to meet Esau and sends his family ahead of himself because he's scared of what Esau might do. But they both knew that God had a better story for them. And even though they may not have seen the promise occur in their lifetime, they believe that God will work through the generations for that. And then I think about my story. And it's had its ups and downs. And I imagine God talking to me right now. And he's saying, Keith, when you're born, you're born into a loving family with a mom and dad who love you and your brothers very, very much. But your dad is in the military, so he's gone, and instead of taking you all with him, he keeps you in Montgomery. So you can be close to your family and your grandparents and your, uncle and your cousins and your uncles and aunts. But he travels by himself. He'll call weekly. He'll come home, and when he's home, he is all about you and your boys. But the enemy will come in and bring strife into the marriage that will eventually cause your parents to divorce. And you'll be shocked because divorce does not happen for, your, for families. And it will rock you, but you'll persevere so you can be the strong for your little brothers so they won't have to worry. But deep down, bitterness starts to take root in your heart because your parents are divorced and you sit through a lot of discussions with them and it's hard on you. But you look out, you graduate, you move on, you go to college, and... You'll find community there. You'll find other family there. They're not necessarily godly family, but they are family. They help you through hard times in college, which is one of the reasons why you struggle in school because you want to spend more time with your family than you do studying. But I still have special plans for you. So at your senior year, I place an old friend from high school in your life. You haven't seen him in a long time, and you sit and catch up, and he tells you, Keith, I'm starting a youth camp. And I think you'd be really, really good with kids. I did it last year, and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, that first year was rough. <laughs> but Keith, you go to this camp, and you find that you do have a love for kids. You also have a short temper with some of these kids, but you have a love for them. <laughs> but most importantly, it ignites a fire in you to finish college strong. Because we know by now, Keith, your grades aren't great, but you're going to finish strong. You've gone from being an engineer to go into your original love of medicine. So you're trying to be a doctor. And you've been told that you're not going to make it because of X, Y, and Z. But you try to persevere on, and you kind of lean to the voice of you're not going to make it. 
but you graduate to show the kids that you can work hard and achieve something, but something's still missing in your life. Eventually, Keith, I will put you at a daycare at East Alabama Medical Center where you will continue your love for the kids. This time, you're a bit more patient with them, not blowing up on them easily, but still, they're kids, so they do kind of rub you, but you're much better this time around. And it's here that you meet nurses, and you hear about their life and what they do. And it fascinates you, and they tell you, you should really look into that. So after some work and some financial things, you get into nursing school. And on day two, Keith, you hear the words nurse practitioner said as an option for post-graduation. And from that day forward, you were laser-focused. That is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And the cool thing, this time, Keith, in nursing school, even though it's a lot of hard work, I send you new friends and new family to be around. And the best part is they're godly family and community. So they push you to walk in my ways. They push you to get back into the war. They push you to get back into church because you've been out of church and away from me now for a good eight years. But you get back in, you work hard, and you graduate. Almost top of your class, which is fantastic, knowing how you were the first time. So you start working as a nurse, and you love what you do. You have some patients die along the way, but it does not make your heart bitter. It just keeps pushing you onward and onward to keep loving your patients and helping any way you can. Eventually, you get into MP school, and through a lot of blood, sweat, and a lot of tears and sleepless nights, you graduate. And because of the contacts you had at the hospital, you get this job at an HIV clinic, which you do not want to do, but when you get there, you love it. You love everything about the job and the people who you get to work with. So Keith, you're where I want you are as a nurse practitioner. You've met that goal that I've placed in your heart for medicine. Relationally, relationally, things are a bit different. You're a shy kid. You went to an all-white school, so you're always cautious to put yourself out there because you will be shot down. Sometimes it's for outright rejection because even though you love hard, they don't love you back the same way. So you're rejected on that point. Sometimes rejection comes in the form of, if my family would never accept this because you're black. And it makes you sad and you hear it more times than you would like to, but your heart still does not become bitter. You still continue to press into me and seek you for answers, and you continue to love openly. Eventually, through all your experience with your friends um, in nursing school, you get into a church, you lead a Bible study, and you meet some wonderful people who push you even further in your walk. You become a lay pastor for this small group, and you deal with a lot. Sometimes there's a lot of good celebration, friends getting engaged, um, getting to talk with friends over scripture, and you've come to learn, you've come to have a love for Scripture, Keith, that I love and that I put there for you. But there's also this shepherding role there that I start grooming you here for. You meet with friends over coffee, over dinner, and talk about problems they're having, whether it's being single, whether it is how they look. Keith, I'm even going to have you talk to friends who've been raped, and you have to walk with them through that. But the heart I have given you allows you to walk with them through those hard times and to be there for your friends, as hard as it is, because I'm preparing you one day to be the youth pastor at Compass Church. And eventually, it takes some hard work, but you're the youth pastor at Compass Church, and you have kids under your care. And you, through your experience, you've learned how to control those outbursts and control that anger to 
love on these kids and show them the word and you're so excited to teach them the word of God and Keith right now you're in the middle of the story there are still many 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 years left of following me but you have a choice always you can continue to trust me and follow me or you can go about things your own way so Keith what are you going to do I can't promise Keith that you're going to get married one day and that hurts you a lot because you want that so badly Will you still follow me, Keith? Keith, I know one day you want to be pastor somewhere. If I have you submit to accomplish church for many, many years, are you okay with that? Will you still follow me? These are all questions that go through my head. And when I have my prayer time in the night, I'm going to follow God because he has been gracious to me and he is the father who I have been longing for and I have been searching for my entire life. Still have family hurts, but I'm working on healing those through the grace of God and Jesus Christ himself. Still working on being a better youth pastor. Still working on being a better Christian, but I know that no matter what comes my way, God has been gracious to me and he's brought me here for a purpose. And I will continue to walk that out until my dying day. And I will continue to serve the Lord with all my heart so that one day, at the end of my life, I will get to heaven and I will stand before God and he'll hug me, and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come in and find rest. We're all in the middle of our story, and we all have a choice to make from here on out. Do we follow God through the hard times, through the great times, through the unsure times? Or do we choose to write our own story and see how that turns out? I'm not sure where you're at right now with your walk or anything, but... Know this, that God sees you, he sees your hurts, he hears you crying out to him, and he wants to answer. Aside from Christ, there's no way to get to God. You'll hear a lot of people out here say, oh, well, there's this way to God, or this way to God, and this way to God, and the answer is no, there's not. The word clearly says, only way to God is through Christ the Son. Christianity is the most inclusive yet exclusive club on earth. Inclusive, exclusive in that once you're a Christian, you are all about God and his ways. But it is totally inclusive because God has made one way to get to man, to get to him, and it's through his son, Jesus Christ. And I don't know what your story's been like up to this point. It might be filled with um, a great job, a great family, no worries whatsoever but still some deep down telling you that something's missing in your life. Or your life might be a bit more hard. You might have had to suffer through abuse, suffer through loss, suffer through lack, suffer through abuse emotionally, spiritually, emotionally, whatever that may be. And you're wondering, why would God allow that? My answer to that is, we live in a fallen world. Whenever Adam sinned, that brought sin to um, disobey God by eating the fruit in the Garden of Eden, that brought sin into the world. And now we live and are born into a fallen world. It does not mean that God loves you any less. It just means that we're part of a fallen, broken world. So you have a choice tonight to listen to the spirit that's tugging inside of you to say, I just need belief in my son, Jesus Christ, so that way I can experience God's salvation and this new life that I've heard about. And if that's you tonight, um, 
we're going to put some worship music on and just let everybody just kind of go in prayer and just cry out to God if that's you. You can come talk to me. I'll pray with you. If you want to talk to somebody else, that's fine. But we're here for you because this is what we're called to do. Go out, share the good news so that way people can come back and see that God is good. See that his story for you is much better than anything you could write for yourself. And for those of us who are already believers, this is the time just to pray to God. Just If there's any part of your life that you have not submitted fully to him, now's the time just to talk to him about that and go to him in prayer. So, Hemp, if you'll put that music on, and just everybody, you can stand up and pray and just go to God right now.